Chapter twenty seven, part six of volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty seven. The Wars of Italy. Louis the Twelfth. 1498 to 1515, Part 6. From 1510 to 1512 the war in Italy was thus proceeding, but with no great results, when Gaston de Foy, Duke of Nemours, came to take the command of the French army. He was scarcely twenty-three, and had hitherto only served under Trivulzio and La Palice, but he had already a character for bravery and intelligence in war. Louis the Twelfth loved this son of his sister, Mary of Orléans, and gladly elevated him to the highest rank. Gaston, from the very first, justified this favor. Instead of seeking for glory in the field only, he began by shutting himself up in Milan, which the Swiss were besieging. They made him an offer to take the road back to Switzerland, if he would give them a month's pay. The sum was discussed. Gaston considered that they asked too much for their withdrawal. The Swiss broke off the negotiation, but to the great astonishment of everybody, says Guicardini, they raised the siege and returned to their own country. The Pope was besieging Bologna. Gaston arrived there suddenly with a body of troops whom he had marched out at night through a tempest of wind and snow, and he was safe inside the place whilst the besiegers were still ignorant of his movement. The siege of Bologna was raised. Gaston left it immediately to march on Brescia, which the Venetians had taken possession of for the Holy League. He retook the town by a vigorous assault, gave it up to pillage, punished with death Count Louis Avogaro and his two sons, who had excited the inhabitants against France, and gave a beating to the Venetian army before its walls. All these successes had been gained in a fortnight. According to universal opinion, says Guicardini, Italy for several centuries had seen nothing like these military operations. We are not proof against the pleasure of giving a place in this history to a deed of virtue and chivalrous kindness on Bayard's part, the story of which has been told and retold many times in various works. It is honorable to humankind, and especially to the Middle Ages, that such men and such deeds are met with here and there, amidst the violence of war and the general barbarity of manners. Bayard had been grievously wounded at the assault of Brescia, so grievously that he said to his neighbor, the Lord of Malart, Comrade, march your men forward, the town is ours. As for me, I cannot pull on farther, for I am a dead man. When the town was taken, two of his archers bare him to a house, the most conspicuous they saw thereabouts. It was the abode of a very rich gentleman, but he had fled away to a monastery, and his wife had remained at the abode under the care of our Lord, together with two fair daughters she had, the which were hidden in a granary beneath some hay. When there came a knocking at her door, she saw the good knight who was being brought in thus wounded, the which had shut the door incontinently, and set at the entrance the two archers, to the which he said, Take heed for your lives, that none enter herein unless it be any of my own folk. I am certified that, when it is known to be my quarters, none will try to force a way in, and if by your aiding me I be the cause that ye lose a chance of gaining somewhat, never ye mind, ye shall lose not thereby. The archers did as they were bid, and he was borne into a mighty fine chamber, into the which the lady of the house herself conducted him, 
and throwing herself upon her knees before him, she spoke after this fashion, being interpreted, Noble sir, I present unto you this house, and all that is herein. For well I know that it is yours by right of war. But may it be your pleasure to spare me my honour and life, and those of two young daughters that I and my husband have, who are ready for marriage. The good knight, who never thought wickedness, replied to her, Madam, I know not whether I can escape from the wound that I have, but so long as I live, you and your daughters shall be done no displeasure, any more than to my own person. Only keep them in your chambers, let them not be seen, and I assure you that there is no man in the house who would take upon himself to enter any place against your will. When the good lady heard him so virtuously speak, she was all assured. Afterwards he prayed her to give instructions to some good surgeon, who might quickly come to tend him, which she did, and herself went in quest of him with one of the archers. He, having arrived, did probe the good knight's wound, which was great and deep. Howbeit he certified him that there was no danger of death. At the second dressing came to see him the Duke of Nemours surgeon, called Master Claude, the which did thenceforward have the healing of him, and right well he did his devoir, in such short that in less than a month he was ready to mount a horseback. The good knight, when he was dressed, asked his hostess where her husband was, and the good lady, all in tears, said to him, By my faith, my lord, I know not whether he be dead or alive, but I have a shrewd idea that, if he be living, he will be in a large monastery, where he hath large acquaintance. Lady, said the good knight, have him fetched, and I will send in quest of him, in such sort, that he shall have no harm. She set herself to inquire where he was, and found him. Then were sent in quest of him the good knight's steward and two archers, who brought him away in safety, and on his arrival he had joyous cheer, reception, from his guest, the good knight, the which did tell him not to be melancholic, and that there was quartered upon him none but friends. For about a month or five weeks was the good knight ill of his wound, without leaving his couch. One day he was minded to get up, and he walked across his chamber, not being sure whether he could keep his legs. Somewhat weak he found himself, but the great heart he had gave him not leisure to think long thereon. He sent to fetch the surgeon who had the healing of him, and said to him, My friend, tell me, I pray you, if there be any danger in setting me on the march. Meseems that I am well, or all but so, and I give you my faith that, in my judgment, the binding will henceforth harm me more than mend me, for I do marvellously fret. The good knight's servitors had already told the surgeon the great desire he had to be at the battle, for every day he had news from the camp of the French, how they were getting nigh the Spaniards, and there were hopes from day to day of the battle, which would, to his great sorrow, have been delivered without him. Having knowledge whereof, and also knowing his complexion, the surgeon said, in his own language, My lord, your wound is not yet closed up, howbeit inside it is quite healed. Your barber shall see to dressing you this once more, and provided that every day, morning and evening, he put on a little piece of lint and a plaster, for which I will deliver to him the ointment, it will not increase your hurt, and there is no danger, for the worst of the wound is a top, and will not touch the saddle of your horse. Whoso had given him ten thousand crowns, the good knight had not been so glad. He determined to set out in two days, commanding his people to put in order all his gear. The lady with whom he lodged, who held herself all the while his prisoner, together with her husband and her children, had many imaginings. Thinking to herself that, if her guest were minded to treat with rigour herself and her husband, he might get out of them ten or twelve thousand crowns, for they had two thousand a year, she made up her mind to make him some worthy present, 
and she had found him so good a man, and of so gentle a heart, that to her thinking he would be graciously content. On the morning of the day whereon the good knight was to dislodge after dinner, his hostess, with one of her servitors carrying a little box made of steel, entered his chamber, where she found that he was resting in a chair, after having walked about a great deal, so as continually, little by little, to try his leg. She threw herself upon both knees, but incontinently he raised her up, and would never suffer her to speak a word, until she was first seated beside him. She began her speech in this matter. My lord, the grace which God did me, at the taking of this town, in directing you to this our house, was not less than the saving to me of my husband's life, and my own, and my two daughters, together with their honour, which they ought to hold dearer still. And more, from the time that you arrived here, there hath not been done to me, or to the least of my people, a single insult, but all courtesy, and there hath not been taken by your folks of the goods they found here the value of a farthing without paying for it. My lord, I am well aware that my husband, and I, and my children, and all of this household are your prisoners, for to do with and dispose of at your good pleasure, as well as the goods that are herein. But knowing the nobleness of your heart, I am come for to entreat you right humbly that it may please you to have pity upon us, extending your wonted generosity. Here is a little present we make you. You will be pleased to take it in good part. Then she took the box which the servitor was holding, and opened before it the good knight, who saw it full of beautiful ducats. The gentle lord, who never in his life made any case of money, burst out laughing, and said, "'Madam, how many ducats are there in this box?' The poor soul was afraid that he was angry at seeing so few, and said to him, "'My lord, there are but two thousand five hundred ducats, but if you are not content we will find a larger sum.' Then said he, "'By my faith, madam, though you should give me a hundred thousand crowns, you would not do so well towards me as you have done by the good cheer I have had here, and the kind tendance you have given me. In whatsoever place I may happen to be, you will have—' so long as God shall grant me life, a gentleman at your bidding. As for your ducats, I will none of them, and yet I thank you. Take them back. All my life I have always loved people much better than crowns. And think not in any wise that I do not go away as well pleased with you, as if this town were at your disposal, and you had given it to me. The good lady was much astonished at finding herself put off. My lord, said she, I should feel myself forever the most wretched creature in the world, if you did not take away with you so small a present as I make you, which is nothing in comparison with the courtesy you have shown me heretofore, and still show me now by your great kindness. When the knight saw her so firm, he said to her, Well then, madam, I will take it for love of you, but go and fetch me your two daughters, for I would fain bid them farewell. The poor soul, who thought herself in paradise, now that her present was at last accepted, went to fetch her daughters, the which were very fair, good, and well-educated, and had afforded the good knight much pastime during his illness, for right well could they sing and play on the lute and spin it, and right well work with a needle. They were brought before the good knight, who, whilst they were attiring themselves, had caused the ducats to be placed in three lots, two of a thousand each, and the other of five hundred. They, having arrived, would have fallen on their knees, but were incontinently raised up, and the elder of the two began to say, my lord, these two poor girls, to whom you have done so much honour as to guard them, are come to take leave of you, humbly thanking your lordship for the favour they have received, for which, having nothing else in their power, they will be for ever bound to pray God for you. The good knight, half weeping to see so much sweetness and humility in those two fair girls, made answer, 
Dear demoiselle, you have done what I ought to do, that is, thank you for the good company you have made me, and for which I feel myself much beholden and bounden. You know that fighting men are not likely to be laden with pretty things for to present to ladies, and for my part, I am sore displeased that I am in no wise well provided for making you such a present as I am bound to make. Here is your lady mother, who has given me two thousand five hundred ducats, which you see on this table. Of them I give to each of you a thousand towards your marriage, and for my recompense you shall, and it please you, pray God for me. He put the ducats into their aprons, whether they would or not, and then, turning to his hostess, he said to her, Madam, I will take these five hundred ducats for mine own profit, to distribute them amongst the poor sisterhoods which have been plundered, and to you I commit the charge of them, for you, better than any other, will understand where there is need thereof, and thereupon I take my leave of you. Then he touched them all upon the hand, after the Italian manner, and they fell upon their knees, weeping so bitterly that it seemed as if they were to be led out to their deaths. Afterwards they withdrew to their chambers, and it was time for dinner. After dinner there was little sitting ere the good knight called for the horses, for much he longed to be in the company, so yearned for by him, having fine fear lest the battle should be delivered before he was there. As he was coming out of his chamber to mount a horseback, the two fair daughters of the house came down and made him, each of them, a present which they had worked during his illness. One was two pretty and delicate bracelets, made of beautiful tresses of gold and silver thread, so neatly that it was a marvel. The other was a purse of crimson satin, worked right cunningly. Greatly did he thank them, saying that the present came from a hand so fair that he valued it at ten thousand crowns, and in order to do him the more honour he had the bracelets put upon his arms, and he put the horse in his sleeve, assuring them that, so long as they lasted, he would wear them for love of the givers. Bayard had good reason for being in such a hurry to rejoin his comrades in arms, and not miss the battle he foresaw. All were as full of it as he was. After the capture of Brescia, Gaston de Foy passed seven or eight days more there, whilst Bayard was confined by his wound to his bed. The prince went, once at least, every day to see the good knight, the which he comforted as best he might, and often said to him, "'Hey, Sir Bayard, my friend, think about getting cured.' for well I know that we shall have to give the Spaniards battle between this and a month, and if it should so be, I had rather have lost all I am worth than not have you there, so great a confidence I have in you. Believe me, my lord, answered Bayard, that if so it is there is to be a battle, I would, as well for the service of the king my master as for love of you and for mine own honour, which is before everything, rather have myself carried thither in a litter than not be there at all. The Duke of Nemours made him a load of presents according to his power, and one day sent him five hundred crowns, the which the good knight gave to the two archers who had stayed with him when he was wounded. Louis the Twelfth was as impatient to have the battle delivered as Bayard was to be in it. He wrote time after time to his nephew Gaston that the moment was critical, that Emperor Maximilian harboured a design of recalling the five thousand lands connects he had sent as auxiliaries to the French army, and that they must be made use of whilst they were still to be had, that, on the other hand, Henry the Eighth, King of England, was preparing for an invasion of France, and so was Ferdinand, King of Spain, in the south. A victory in the field was indispensable to baffle all these hostile plans. It was Louis the Twelfth's mania to direct, from Paris, or from Lyon, the war which he was making at a distance, and to regulate its movements as well as its expenses. The Florentine ambassador, Pandolfini, 
was struck with the perilousness of this mania, and Cardinal Dumboise was no longer by to oppose it. Gaston de Foy asked for nothing better than to act with vigor. He set out to march on Ravenna, in hopes that by laying siege to this important place he would force a battle upon the Spanish army, which sought to avoid it. There was a current rumor in Italy that this army, much reduced in numbers and cooled in ardor, would not hold its own against the French if it encountered them. Some weeks previously, after the siege of Bologna had been raised by the Spaniards, there were distributed about at Rome little bits of paper having on them, If anybody knows where the Spanish army happens to be, let him inform the sacristan of peace. He shall receive as reward a lump of cheese. Gaston de Foy arrived on the 8th of April, 1512, before Ravenna. He learned that, on the 9th of March, the ambassador of France had been sent away from London by Henry the Eighth. Another hint came to him from his own camp. A German captain, named Jacob, went and told Chevalier Bayard, with whom he had contracted a friendship, that the emperor had sent orders to the captain of the Lansconnects that they were to withdraw incontinently on seeing his letter, and that they were not to fight the Spaniards. "'As for me,' said he, "'I have taken oath to the king of France, and I have his pay. If I were to die a hundred thousand deaths, I would not do this wickedness of not fighting, but there must be haste.' The good knight, who well knew the gentle heart of Captain Jacob, commended him marvellously, and said to him, by the mouth of his interpreter, My dear comrade and friend, never did your heart imagine wickedness. Here is my lord of Nemur, who has ordered to his quarters all the captains, to hold a council. Go we thither, you and I, and we will show him privately what you have told me. It is well thought on, said Captain Jacob. Go we thither. So they went thither. There were dissensions at the council. Some said that they had three or four rivers to cross, that everybody was against them, the Pope, the King of Spain, the Venetians, and the Swiss that the emperor was anything but certain, and that the best thing would be to temporize. Others said that there was nothing for it but to fight or die of hunger like good-for-noughts and cowards. The good Duke of Nemur, who had already spoken with the good knight and with Captain Jacob, desired to have the opinion of the former, the which said, My lord, the longer we sojourn, the more miserable too will become our plight, for our men have no victual, and our horses must needs live on what the willows shoot forth at the present time. Besides, you know that the king, our master, is writing to you every day to give battle, and that in your hands rests not only the safety of his duchy of Milan, but also all his dominion of France, seeing the enemies he has to-day. Wherefore, as for me, I am of opinion that we ought to give battle, and proceed to it discreetly, for we have to do with cunning folks and good fighters. That there is peril in it is true, but one thing gives me comfort. The Spaniards, for a year past, have, in this Romagna, been always living like fish in the water, and are fat and full-fed. Our men have had, and still have, great lack of victual, whereby they will have longer breath, and we have no need of aught else, for whoso fights the longest, to him will remain the field. The leaders of note in the army sided with the good knight, and notice thereof was at once given to all the captains of horse and foot. End of chapter 27, part 6